We are here at uh, the beginning of our series on design for glory. Uh, last week we were looking at at what I think is a key passage from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he talks about that the whole purpose of our salvation and the work of sanctification is that we would we would possess we would we would know what it was to possess the glory of Christ instead of instead of living in uh, a glory hungry and a glory empty kind of life rather to realize we were designed to possess glory that that hunger that that drive to fill the emptiness in, in, inside of, of glory is a God design that can only be fulfilled and the longings can only be satisfied if you begin to possess the glory of Christ, which is every believer's, uh, you know, heritage. It's, our, it's, it's what it means to become <clears throat> a Christ follower. It's what it means to become a child of God. And, and we looked somewhat at, at the glory of Christ in terms of his beauty, that, that the love of Christ is beautiful, that, that every characteristic is beautiful, that he you know, is victorious in everything he does over sin, over death, over Satan, and that, and, and that he has incredible worth, so much so that in Revelation it speaks of the praise of the entire Congregation, heavenly congregation, singing out, saying, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor, and you know, and all of these things." So, so when you unite yourself with Christ and uh, through through faith in Christ, and Christ unites His glory to you, His beauty, His His worth, His value, His victory, His power now is united with you as well. And you live in that by faith, not by willfulness or willpower. And what is so important in this second week, because they flow together, is that, you know, this, this exchange, your glory for his glory, his glory uh, invading and, 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 and saturating your life, possessing his glory, is all based on the destiny that you have for joy. And that understanding of that joy is essential to your satisfaction, your fulfillment as being a possessor of the glory of Christ. And so joy is central to glory and glory produces joy. Listen what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses Eight and nine, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, talking about God, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice, and here it is, with joy that is inexpressible. And so, you know, it's a it's it's a joy that is beyond words. And then notice what it says: a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, joy and glory, glory and joy obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So to be a Christian, Peter is saying, that's someone who has, who has been justified by faith, that you're recognizing that having come to faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness has made you acceptable to the Father. 
Christ's righteousness has made you accepted by the Father so that you have peace with God. You're not at odds with God. You're not in, you know, in a rebellious relationship with God. Rather, you're, you have been brought into the very family of God, brought into the love of the Father, accepted by the Father. And then this passage says that the main mark of someone who really is a Christian, living a Christian life, is we rejoice. We have joy in the hope of the glory of God, even in our suffering. And our hope is in God himself. Not just a hope in good outcomes, because sometimes good outcomes do not happen in this life. But our hope is in God. Not in God as a means to our outcomes, but God in and of himself. And I mean, one of my favorite writers of all time is John Stott. And he says, it seems clear from this paragraph that the main mark of justified believers is choice. So again, I talked about this a little bit on, on Sunday, but you can, you can distinguish joy and happiness. We use them interchangeably. But the idea of biblical joy is a little bit different than happiness. Happiness is momentary. It's, it's, it's the feeling that your needs have been met, the feeling that your desires are, be, are being met or have been met. And it also is, happiness is, is feeling comfortable. You cannot be happy and uncomfortable. Uh, so happiness is, is a very, in, in many ways, a very distinct, I would say, a more chemically produced sort of euphoria, a chemically produced pleasure. And therefore, because of that, it can also be, it can be taken away quickly because it's circumstantially or needs-based. It When you feel threatened, when you feel uncomfortable, happiness goes away. So to actually have this kind of joy that Peter's talking about, that Stott's saying is, is, is the mark of the believer, you have to have a, a center of joy that is beyond the circumstances, beyond people in your life. And it is what Peter is talking about here is there is a, a joy center in God that is unshakable. And it's so interesting is that in a way, you see, when you have a chemical happiness, you can you have words to express that. I'm happy, you know, I'm I'm ecstatic, I'm over the moon. You have words to express it. He's saying that there's a center of joy that gives you an experience of joy that is beyond words, with joy that is inexpressible. And this is Peter's saying this this is this is for a believer to experience. Now for the purpose of our study, we're really talking about the fact that, that you were designed for glory, therefore you're designed to be God-glorifying. And what Peter is saying is that joy is central to God-glorifying because it's, it's central to what it means to be God, so therefore it's central to those who are, who are wanting to be followers or believers of God. So joy is foundational to the very nature of God. God is a joyful God. And so therefore, God's heart 
is that you would find joy to be foundational in your obedience. That in a way, God-exalting obedience is not God-exalting unless it is joyful obedience. And again, you just give the the simple um, illustration that the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Well, many of us would say, well, I'm giving. Isn't that enough? But it, it doesn't exalt God if you're giving out of, out of obligation. It doesn't exalt God if you're giving in order to get. I'm going to give God $100 so that he will bring back tenfold and I'll get $1,000. That's not God exalting. That's a business transaction. It's cold. It's impersonal. But if you're saying, Lord, everything I have is yours, and I, and I feel like you want me to, I want you, you want me to give this back to you and to your work and to your kingdom, and you get a joy in that giving. Then, then not only not only does the giving exalt God, but it brings great satisfaction to you because exalting God becomes becomes the goal there, not oh he's got to give me back because I gave sacrificially to him. Why is that true? Well. Because what the Bible teaches about the very nature of God is that he's not God if he's not a joyful God. So many of us have been worshiping an angry God, but that's not how he reveals himself. And so without joy, everything you're doing is lacking the the essential virtue of God-likeness. So... If you're going to understand God, you have to understand joy. And then the most important thing, in the basis of every blessing in your life from God comes out of this union. Think about all the times that Paul talks about in Christ, Christ in you. I think it's like 40 some odd times in just the letter to the Ephesians. In just those first couple of chapters. So this union in Christ, Christ in you, is... It's essential to understand that this is a union with joy. That Christ has united his joy to you. I mean, even the hardest thing anyone has ever done to go to the cross, not just to bear the, the pain, physical pain of the cross, but actually to go to the cross and to experience a separation from joy. See, he had always lived in the joy of the Father. He had always lived in the anointing of the joy of the Holy Spirit. And on the cross, he was separated. Instead of joy, he became cursed. Instead of being the righteous son, he became the curse. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And the scripture is really clear on that. It says, why do you do that? For the joy set before him. And you're that joy, the joy he has in you. And part of, part of what we, we try to do is we try to make ourselves do the right things by saying, God will be disappointed in me. God will get me. God will punish me. All of those are not God glorifying. Those are fear-based And fear-based behavior management is selfish. It is not God-glorifying, it is self-centered. 
trying to avoid bad consequences, trying to avoid punishment, which in a sense, you see, is a repudiation of the gospel. It's a repudiation of the very character and nature of God. The joy of God in you is not based on your behavior. The joy of God in you is based on your union with Christ. Because Christ is in you, the joy of God is in you. And and part of what's so important to understand is, is that this is, this is the very nature of the being of God. And, and I know this is, you know, it's, uh, somewhat heavy and somewhat deep, but as a believer and to understand the Bible and understand God, you have to come to the place where you understand that God is complex. And, and, and one simple way of understanding this is no one knows God but God, and God himself and God's understanding of himself is complete. And the desire of God is that you would understand and know him as he reveals himself, not as you want him to be, not as others tell you he is, but as he reveals himself to be. And if you carefully study the scriptures, you will see that God reveals himself as one, but in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, God has always existed. No one initiated God. God is is the original. And in his understanding of himself, and as he has revealed himself to us, the, the, the very nature of God is joy. And now this joy has existed in the Godhead, in this Trinitarian relationship. This joy has existed eternally. It's the joy of God in God. Now, the reason the Trinitarian idea is so important, one is, first and foremost, it's God's understanding of himself and God's revelation of himself. So anybody else is just is just. You know, postulating, just putting forth their own idea of God. That's not God. The only one who knows God is God, and the only one who can make himself known is God. And the way God knows himself and understands himself is that he's an eternal, non-initiated, no one originated God. He has always existed. But he's always existed in this relationship of father. And the father's idea of himself is that the son has always proceeded from, the, fa- the son is always begotten of the father. The way the, the father reveals his idea of himself is he's a father to the son, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of God. And, and he, he, the father, revealing to us this second distinct person of the Trinity, the Son, is giving us the perfect understanding of who he is and of what he is. And and in God's perfect knowledge of himself, God's knowing God, Jesus is the only begotten Son. And, And you see this 
in all these different designations in the scriptures describing Jesus as the logos of God, the image of God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God, the Son of God is the fully divine personal standing forth of God's understanding or God's idea of himself. The apostles did not create the second person of the Trinity. The apostles did not, in some way, you know, create a religion for the second person of the Trinity. God revealed, this is who I am, this is how I understand myself, and there's no way to understand God without understanding God the way God understands God. And so the Son of God is the only person through which faith in him brings you into right relationship with the Father because what the Son is doing is he is transferring in many ways or he's, he's giving you the relationship he has with the Father. His acceptance, his righteousness, the Father's love of the Son now because you are in the Son, the second person of the Trinity, all of that love the Father has for the Son is now is, is now coming in fullness towards you. So the joy the Father has in the Son is now the joy the Father has in you because you are in the Son, and the Son is in you. This is why the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is absolutely necessary. He's eternal. He's, he, has, he has no beginning. He's always been the begotten of God. There wasn't one God who split into three. There's always been this community. Why is that so important? Well, because you see, one of the important, I mean, there are many important reasons, but one of the important reasons if, is, is if God is not Trinitarian, then he never knew love till he created humans. And so he needed humans in order to experience love. He never knew joy until he created humans because in reality, true love and true joy is experienced in relationship, not apart from relationship. And so having an eternal relationship of love and joy, the father and the son, are not creating something new in relationship with you. They are bringing you into their eternal love and joy in each other. And now it's in you. It's towards you. You've been set in the middle of the love and the joy. But it's not enough to speak only of the Father, you know, begetting the Son. But there's this, there's this, powerful aspect that the joy they have in each other and the love that they have in each other proceeds from them and from the action of that pure love and that pure joy they have for each other. And it, this mutual love and joy and this mutual delight that they have in each other, Jonathan Edwards says that this divine essence flows out and is, as it were, breathed forth in love and joy, so that the Godhead therein stands forth in yet another manner of distinct personhood, the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit is, is the personification of 
this incredible love and this incredible joy that the Father has in the Son, the Son and the Father. And, it, and he is the personification of their enjoyment, of their delight, of their experience of one another. This is an eternal, distinct personhood. Not, not an it, not a thing, but a personification of the love and the joy of the Trinity. So what, what happens then is the Holy Spirit is the fully divine personal standing forth of the joy of God. It's the joy in the Son and the Son's joy in the Father. And so the Holy Spirit is not an angry God living and indwelling believers. Rather, he is God's infinite delight in himself indwelling you. And God's delight in you indwelling you. This is why when you refuse the Holy Spirit, when you when you reject and, and, and resist the Holy Spirit, you're basically resisting the joy of the Lord. But you're resisting him as a person. Not, not, you're not resisting joy as a thing. You're resisting the only way you truly will have the most satisfying joy. You're resisting the person who is the very joy of the Father and the very joy of of the Son and their their utter delight in one another and their delight in you. Because you are in Christ, he delights in you as if you were Christ. And so when you resist that and you don't submit to that and you don't get filled with that, then you're never completely living up to the destiny that you're called into and, and could be could be living in every single day. So joy is it's not a secondary thing. It's 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 essential in understanding Christian theology because it's the heart of who God is. See moaning and groaning and unhappy Christians, depressed and angry, guilt-ridden, shame-ridden Christians are not exalting God even if they're not doing certain behaviors. Because to be really filled with God is to be filled with the delight of God that he experiences in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about this in John 15, 11. Here, here are Jesus' words. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You understand everything that's going on in your life, every single thing, it has this purpose, that my joy may be in you. Not just chemical happiness, not just a sense of comfort, not just a temporary sense of well-being, but rather the delight of God in God in you and that your joy may be full. So God... Not, not with, you know, not accidentally, but very intentionally, wants to put on display his character of joy, his, his relationship of joy. He wants to put on display to the world through you. He wants to communicate, not 
the angry God, not the disappointed God, but rather the joyful God, the God who is delighted in his relationship, father, son, so delighted that a third person distinctly comes forth from this love and this joy, and his name is the Holy Spirit. And we, the human beings, our our ultimate design was to manifest the joy of God in himself by being joyful in him. See, this is, in many ways, this is why the original sin was such an issue. Because the enemy, the serpent, was able to convince the humans that there was joy found in disobedience. There was joy found in something that God had pro- prohibited. That there was glory to be found, joy to be found. And so, see, you and I have been, we've been tempted, we've been led astray so often by, by things that we thought, this will give me joy. And maybe it gave temporary happiness, but it always had a hook in it, always had guilt and shame in it. So, the design of God is that you would you would use two faculties that he has given you two faculties that in many ways are are actually image bearer faculties that you can understand something and you can will something that you can understand and because you understand it then you can choose it so we are capable people of perception and we are also capable of not merely understanding something, but actually beginning to have inclinations towards something. In other words, we do things because we like to do them, or we do things because, or we avoid things because we dislike, that we can be pleased or we can be displeased. That God gave you the ability to approve of things and to reject things. You might call this your will the ability to like or dislike, the ability to be pleased or displeased. So your heart is filled with affections. You have love, you have hate, you have desire, fear, you have hope. Edwards again says, these are the more rigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and the will of the soul. So so what happens is you look at things, you perceive things, you understand things, and what that produces in you are affections. Now, they can be, I like something, or or you can be repulsed by something. You say, I dislike this thing. Um, Isn't it funny, uh, so often, you're with somebody and and they, they either smell something terrible or they taste something terrible, and yet, they always want you to taste it or smell it too. Oh, this smells terrible. Smell it. Oh, this was awful taste. Taste this. Is it? You know, even sometimes uh, Lisa will give me uh, milk that's been in there a little while and goes, taste this and see if it's any good. And, and you know, I mean, the minute you taste or smell something that you understand or perceive, this, this smells bad, this tastes terrible, there's a repulsion that goes, and your will goes, no, I don't want to taste that. No, I don't want to drink that. I don't want to eat that. Get that away from me. See, that's your will perceiving 
whether you like or dislike something, whether you, you know, whether you approve of it or reject it. And then, and then it kicks in to say, I won't do that or don't, don't make me do that. Or sometimes someone will say, man, this tastes wonderful or this smells wonderful. And you're like, you, I want more of it. You see your will, your understanding and your will are acting together. So here's, here's what this passage, these passages about joy are talking about, is that God has given you the, the ability to understand and to perceive what you approve, what you like, what, you, what you're, you know, pleases you. And he's asking you to see him in his joy and to see joy as central to the relationship of the Trinity, but also as joy as central to your relationship with him. He's asking you to perceive this, not, not simply to have it as a concept that you keep somewhere far away, but to get it into your very being that God, God is pleasing. God is, God is worthy of my approval. God is something I want, I, I can like, I can, I can have something more than just this arm's length relationship because I have to, or because I'm trying to avoid punishment or I'm trying to avoid bad consequences, but rather that he wants you to understand how beautiful, how worthy, how victorious he is. And for you to perceive that as, I like this. I desire this. I approve of this. So that then your will will not be constrained to be obedient, but so that your will will, will, will will begin to say, this is what I want. This is what I need. And I think at the heart of this today, I just think this is so important. Joy is central and essential to what it means, therefore, to be God. So God has created you in his image. He's created with you the capacity, not just to know the truth, but to see the beauty of the truth, to see the, the, how it relates to you and your life. But see, having perceived it, having understand it, he's also giving you the capacity then to choose, to will the will of God for your life. One of the ways that I like stating is this, your will then needs to be inclined to enjoy supremely, to enjoy at the highest level what is supremely enjoyable, and that is only in God. Not only did he create you to see his glory, and he is desirous to put his glory on full display in your knowing him, but also in your enjoying him so that you perceive him as he is, the God of joy. You understand him. You rejoice in him. You see him. You savor him. This is really what it means to possess glory and really what it means to be possessed by glory. You see, when you're a, when you're a sour, angry, guilt-ridden, shameful, never, ever happy Christian, that means you're not knowing God in his fullness. Because to know him in his fullness, to understand, to perceive it, is then to will and say, this is where my enjoyment comes from. 
I was glory empty, but now I'm glory. I possess the glory that makes me full.